just weren't able to seal the deal, you know. But um, we're confident going back home, you know, splitting the series, splitting the two games here, and you know, have three in the Bronx. Well, Flip, that was Aaron Judge speaking Sunday night on our Yankees postgame show on Yes. And judging from his tone, not only is he saying the right things, Flip, but I think he genuinely believes that the Yankees are in a great spot heading home. What do you think? I think they're in a really good spot. They, they won the game they needed to win, which was they needed to win the game one. They, they did, because any game that you've got Verlander or Cole pitching in, you could be as great as the Yankees are. That is a supreme challenge. So they had to win the first game, and they did. And then with the Yankees now then breaking the home field, uh, Houston then had to win game two. So the Yankees won the game. They needed to win. Houston won the game. It had to win. Now it's 1-1 going to New York. And Game Three, which Joe Torre used to always say was the most important game of any series, because it's like the sw- it could be it's a swing game. It's a swing game because at tied one one somebody's going to come out with a two one advantage, or if you're up two love, it gives you a chance to go to you know three love and, and you know and put you one away from from accomplishing the mission. So Game Three is always viewed as the most important game. The first two games were, were these two games were epic. When I tell you epic, the the score was, I mean, the, the game game one had so much tension, and the Yankees did break it open thanks to Gleyber Torres. He was just he was put on, he was just a one-person wrecking crew. He was, and the Yankee bullpen did its job. And uh, so you had the combination of the bullpen and the Yankee offense coming through and putting the Yankees in a great position, winning that first game. Houston came back, won the second game. It was, it was uh, I mean, there was so much tension and drama in that game. It was a classic postseason game. It was well played by both sides, and Houston came out on top. That home field matters, and it was Correa who's been slumping. You know, came through with a big hit, hit that home run, won the game. And but it was great television. It was a lot of drama, and uh, as we talked about, it's one one now going back to New York. Uh, for new listeners, I'm Kevin Sullivan. I work in the digital media department here at the Yes Network. To my left is Mr. John J. Filippelli, five decades in the business, and if um, I was counting in your office, I believe it's more than 100 Emmys, national and local. Is that right? I counted. Something like that. It's, it's uh, yeah, something like that. I, I don't know. It just says, you know what it says. It speaks to longevity. If you're around long enough, you, you're going to get a lot of things. Um, and the other thing is working with such great people that we have at Yes, or that I've worked with in my career. I've been very privileged to work with the, the best people that this industry has to offer. And uh, when you work with great people uh, who who have just so much talent, the result is always going to you know be positive one. So fortunate there. I have one Emmy. And you, and you burned it though, right? <laughs> the ice bucket challenge. I'm was like it for? Susan Lucci. I, I, it's been 10, 12 years since I won one. Uh, <laughs> moving on. This is your year, then. I think so, right? Yeah, I think so. So uh, wait, 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 wait. Yeah, we, we had 33 Emmy nominations last year. We won like 13, which yeah. is a nice number. So you did not get any of. I was nominated three times right. last year and got nothing. nothing. I was nominated. I was up against myself last year. And I still lost. <laughs> there was a there was a three person yeah. category. I was I in see. it twice, and I still lost. That is amazing. <laughs> Only me. <laughs> I, you know that might be true. I, I've never heard of that. That's amazing. <laughs> well, you know this will be your year, though. I, I believe it's going to be the Yankees' year too. But I believe it'll be your year as well. If it is the Yankees' year, it's going to be because of pitching. You've said it many times in the past. Pitching wins championships. You just said totally. it two minutes ago. Um, and I've been impressed with this pitching so far. Tanaka in Game One and the bullpen. Tanaka was great. I remember I said to you that we were going back to the DS that Tanaka was would have been my choice to start. Yes, um, he he's been he's you know he, especially the postseason he's he goes to another level. It, it just the the bigger the game, the bigger Tanaka pitches. I mean that's been historically what he's done, and uh, he was terrific against the Astros. He really was. You know he kept uh, he wasn't he he has so many pitches he could throw for strikes, so many weapons that he he had them totally he had the Astros totally totally out of sync. He did a wonderful job. He really did. And if Tuesday's game, um, for our listeners, we're recording this on Monday, so uh, series is tied 1-1. Heading into Tuesday's game, if it's as advertised, it's going to be another pitcher's duel. It could be. I mean, it could epically be that. I mean, Cole has had a tremendous year. Uh, you know, he, he he probably is, if I had a vote, I guess I would go there. Verlander is also tr- very deserving. You know, they're going to be 1-2 no matter how you calculate. Whatever math you use, they will be 1-2 in the Cy Young uh, you know, voting, and uh, so you know, obviously, you know what they bring to what what Cole brings and what Verlander brings, and uh, but Severino showed me a lot. 
in his uh, in his DS start. I mean, he was he challenged hitters. He you know he hasn't pitched all that much. He doesn't have a lot of innings, which will work in his favor. You know, if he's just coming back now, and as the postseason goes on, he'll get stronger and stronger. I I, I think, but if I'm listen, I'm I don't manage the team. I'm not in the front office. They've been very successful at what they've done, so I need to say that up front. You know, but I I would like to see the Yankees get a n- more length out of their starters than they're getting. Uh, you know, Tanaka could have gone. I think, in my opinion, a little longer. And you say, well, they've got a great bullpen. Why mess around? And you know what? That's a very good question. Why mess around? Well, here's the thing: is as the series goes on, and it's going to go back and forth. You know, you just don't want to be put in a position where you're burning through your bullpen every day. Especially if Paxton's going two and a third. Well, you know, he he was showing signs of uh, you know that uh, you know that, that uh, he needed to be taken out. And I understood, I understood what they did, uh, but but still in all, I mean, he went through pretty much the entire pitching staff, the entire staff that you could use other than this, this, the upcoming starters. So that, when you do that, and th- I think that may be the Yankee formula. Get whatever you can out of a starter when he gets in trouble, then go to that bullpen, which is tremendous. But the truth is I don't know how you could do that every game because as it goes on, I think then you'll start to wear it out. And if you wear it out, I, I think then the Yankees could be in some trouble here. Yeah, to that point, real quick plug for Jack Curry. His um, he has a segment on our social media platforms called 360, where he goes through um, each game in advance, three points in under 60 seconds. And so far, he's been spot on. Especially, we just talked about the bullpen. Um, go check those out. You will be the smartest Yankees fan of your group if you check those out. I promise you that. Where do they find that? Uh, on our Twitter accounts, on our Facebook, on our Instagram. We are at Yes Network. Uh, strongly urge you to check those out. Chad Green looked amazing. Yeah, I mean, he, he was so amazing that I, I thought he could have lasted a little longer. Again, I'm listen, they see the Yankee management sees things that and Boone has done a tremendous job with this team. Agreed. That's up front. Uh, you know, they see things that they're privy to things and they see things that we just are not going to see or know. So it's easy to second guess and say, well, I would have done this or I would have done that. Uh, you know, it's, hindsight is twenty twenty. It's very easy to do. And like I said, I think he's done an incredible job this year with all that he's had to manage and, and the crisis he's had to deal with. When I say crisis, the injury crisis has been was overwhelming, and yet the Yankees excel, got through it and, and, and won over 100 games. It's an amazing phenomenon. But having said all those things, yes, Green could have lasted, I think, in my opinion, a little longer. And I, I, mean, I certainly think that if you're, going to, you, if you're going to do this and you're going to your pen, then I think you have to you know, get – everybody's got to dig a little deeper. A little length. Yeah, I, I, I get it. I think so. It's, look, what are you saving it for? Right. You know, it's, it's not a question of injury, right? So if you need another inning, you need another two batters, you, know, you go get it. Especially from a green who's Especially from out. a high leverage reliever. Yeah. You know, the Yankees have high leverage relievers. I mean, you know, Britain is a high leverage reliever. Green is a high leverage. Chapman, obviously, is high leverage. You go to your high le- I would go to my high leverage relievers when the game is, is, you know, could be hanging in the balance. No matter what the inning is, I, I would go high leverage there. And you save probably Chapman for the end, but... but but the Yankees had options and choices, and when you have a guy who's pitching so effectively, and you, you, and the and the, other, the opposition has no answer to it, you leave that strength in. That's just me. It's not a question of injury. He had the pitch count wasn't high. It's you know again sabermetrics probably dictates a different sort of matchup against a different hitter. I, I understand that too, but your eyes obviously matter too. Mm-hmm. Uh, worth we should also bring up Tommy Canley's name. He was great. <sighs> he was great too. Unbelievable. We have, um, I want to switch gears real quick because I want to get to our call soon. We have Ian Eagle this week. Some people don't know. He's from an uh, entertainer's family. Yeah, his, his dad was, uh, his dad was a, a comedian and an actor and was in s- several national commercials. And uh, Ian gets his incredible sense of humor, no doubt, from his dad. He grew up in a, in a family that was vaudevillian, actually, so to speak, right? In vaudeville, I believe. I didn't know there were vaudeville in the 60s, but in the 70s. I to, I, I'm, well, actually, you know what it is? I know I'm bald, but I'm too young for you, that. You know what it is, actually? It's it's uh, like it's um, the Catskills. Yes, that's it, exactly that, what it it's is. It's that circuit. Because I used to grow up, when I was growing up, that was a big thing. So his parents were in the uh, were in the Catskill. So they were performers in the Catskill. So he grew up in a family of entertainers. And he's a great broadcaster. He's one of the elite in the game today. I don't know, I don't know really any, anybody more... Uh, Elite, uh, if I could use that word, I used yeah. it three times th- than I am. I mean, he knows his stuff. He knows it thoroughly. Uh, he works with national telecasts uh, for so many different for entities. everybody. Yeah, and we'll get into that when we hear from him in just in literally seconds from now. Um, but and he's uh, he's got a great sense of humor, as you'll see, and he's just a, one of the best people you'll ever meet. So, uh, 
Fantastic. We will hear from him in seconds, but I want to do real quick some housekeeping. I want to tease. This is called the tease in the business. We're going to talk more ALCS after Ian, so don't go anywhere. We're going to talk about Homegrown. That's a great show on our network, uh, produced by Blake Shear. Uh, we're going to talk about paternity leaves. We're going to talk a little bit about the NLCS. We have a lot to talk about, um, but it's also worth noting that this is coming out early this week, and this is from viewer feedback. We take everybody's feedback. Please tweet us at Curtain Call Yes or rate, review, and subscribe. Reviews on iTunes are very important to us. We read them all. We're having fun reading them. They're a good time. We had a great one this week by a listener called George Ribellino. Yeah, I remember him. Uh, I saw that, and that was so kind of him, so nice. Um, he's a good guy, and... Um yeah, when you know you do some bit of kindness, and it was a small kindness. It was ama- amazing that he remembered that all these many years. Because I, I mean, I totally forgot that thing. But anyway, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you need to read it. Just go on, and so you see the reviews for Curtain Call. It'll be there. But it's very kind and, and uh, appreciated. It was a great review. Uh, but as promised, we're going straight to Iron Eagle right after this break. The Yankees are back in the postseason and on the chase for 28. One of the great sport franchises of all time. This October, get in-depth analysis on the field and inside the clubhouse from the network that knows the Bombers best. Catch Yankees pre- and post-game coverage around every playoff game right here on Yes. Welcome back to Curtain Call. John Filippelli, Kevin Sullivan, and at this time, very special guest is one of the one of the great broadcasters uh, in the game today, or the game yesterday, or probably the game of the future, uh, seven or eight times Emmy Award winner. Uh, credits go on forever. The NFL on CBS, NCAA basketball on CBS, NBA on TNT, the Nets on Yes. He's done French Open tennis. He's done boxing. He's worked on the Masters, the PGA, the NCAA track and field. He's uh, opened a Grand Union about two weeks ago. I didn't even know they had Grand Unions anymore, but I had was opened that up. And I mean, he does things like that. He's a very generous guy. He's one of the most, so much fun. And I, I don't know what the next 20, I can't wait to hear what the next 20 minutes are going to be like. But anyway, Ian, welcome to Curtain Call. How are you doing this morning? Yeah, Flip, it, it was a, a King Cullen, actually. But thank you so much. <laughs> nice to talk to you and Kevin. <laughs> did they give stamps? Did they used to give stamps, Kim, King Cullen? They did. Yeah, they gave stamps. Uh, I've opened up the D'Agostinos. I've opened up all the the big uh, grocery chains. That's that's part of my resume. It's it's, it's and you know what? It's it's a strong part of the resume. You never know. I we all in this business need something to fall back on. So you just don't know about those things. So <laughs> it's all good. Yeah, exactly. Uh, okay. So we. Oh God, I got to compose myself now. So we went through. Uh, this list goes on forever. Uh, it just does. I mean, is there any sport that you haven't called? Ah, the one sport I haven't called, which uh, you have actually talked to me about in the past, is is baseball. And ironically, that's the sport where I thought my my future was going to be rooted in. Growing up, huge baseball fan, and as I visualized what my career could be one day, I always thought baseball would would be the main part of it. But, you know, your career takes different turns, and I got some breaks in different sports, and because of that, I ended up being more of a basketball, football guy. But baseball was, was definitely a sport I was focused in on as, as a young man. But uh, the, the path was, was a little uh, divergent and unique. How, how, how do you prepare, Ian, for, for – I mean, this, like I said, we, we started with this list. And actually, we could do – I could name probably another 15 things here. How do you prepare – how do you stay up on all these sports? I mean, we, we all have researchers. We all have help in the business but truthfully this goes beyond help yeah i i need psychiatric help flip there's there's no <laughs> doubt i've i've gotten used to the juggle so i do have a routine down i've been an excellent multitasker i'm very good at texting during games while on the air just to prove to people that that i can handle multiple assignments in a moment and the reality is uh, i've figured out what works for me i think Everybody's got their own way of doing it. I still handwrite everything. I'm not a computer guy when it comes to trying to commit things to memory. I still believe when you write it out, there's some kind of connection between pen to paper and brain. And then it's about compartmentalizing. So there are certain weeks once basketball and football cross over where I'm doing five games in a week and sometimes in five different cities. And the biggest challenge strangely enough, is just remembering what room I'm in from hotel to hotel. Uh, years ago, I was working with Bill Raftery and 
I used to mock him because he would take the little uh, piece of paper that had your room number on it with the key in it. And I'd say, you need that? You can't remember what room you're in? Said, One day, Bird, you'll, you'll see. And he was right. Years later, I show up at a hotel in Charlotte. I go to my room, 823. My key doesn't work. I go downstairs to the front desk. And I'm a little eh, frustrated. I go and ask, hey, my, my key's not working. It's Eagle, room 823. And then they start typing. Uh, so you're in 1141. 823 was two days earlier in Atlanta, and that's where my wires are getting crossed. But for the games themselves, it just takes complete and utter focus and steely concentration. And when you put that headset on for the two and a half hours for an NBA game or the three hours for an NFL game, that's where your mind has to be. Whatever else is happening in your life, it doesn't matter for that stretch of time. Everything that you've done that week to prepare for that game has to be poured in to that time period. You grew up in a family that was sort of rooted in entertainment. Your your dad uh, worked in, was, a, was an actor, who did many commercials, and I mean, that had to obviously pay, play a tremendous influence on you. Explain how your dad influenced you and gave you maybe gave you this incredible sense of humor that you have. Yeah, you know, Flip, I didn't know any different, so I just assumed that this was what life was like. I would go up with my mom and dad to the Catskill Mountains from the age of two on and watch them perform. My mom was my dad's opening act. Uh, she was a singer. My dad was a stand-up comedian. They met at the Playboy Club in Chicago when she opened for him in 1968. And from there... Um, obviously, they ended up getting married. I was born, and this was all I knew. So that was very normal for me, and the idea that they were on stage and they were front and center just seemed very typical. I was uh, probably about six when my parents noticed that I had a, a gift of gab and I was a pretty good mimic. So we worked out about a, a five-minute act where I would do impressions. So they'd bring me up at the end of their act. They'd put me in what they called a handsome suit. This sounds now like some kind of cruelty, but I think I enjoyed it. And it included a bow tie of some sort. I looked like uh, you know, maybe a, a, a doll of some sort or a dummy. And I would do five minutes. I did Howard Cosell. I did uh, Muhammad Ali. I did W.C. Fields, which was a huge hit back in 1975-76, and I was not intimidated. Sometimes in front of over a thousand people at the Concord Hotel or Grossinger's or the Pines or the Neville or the Falls View or Browns or Stevensville, you, you name it. You can't uh, leave us hanging They here. worked. You, you can't. Yeah, these were, these were the... the gems of the Catskills. <laughs> you, and it definitely gave me confidence. It gave me a sense that I could do anything if I put my mind to it. So when I told my parents when I was eight years old that I wanted to be a sportscaster, they didn't blink. They both told me, then that's what you'll do. And that's really empowering as a kid when you're told by your parents that you can do whatever it is you want to do. So I believed it. And I, I didn't do anything about it at that point until I got to Syracuse, other than, you know, playing with baseball cards in your room or uh, having fictitious games or then playing pickup basketball or stickball and doing play-by-play -play to the amusement of your friends. But there was a real honest resolve in my mind that, okay, then I'm just going to do this and that's going to be my life. You, you, I mean, obviously you've given me a lot of leads here where to go, but I'm gonna, we, I need, we need to go backwards a little bit. I need an impression. Give me what you believe is your best impression. <laughs> come on, come on. I know you haven't done it in a long time, but you know, I'm sure the, our, our listeners want to hear uh, your, your impressions. One of them. Give me one. Give me your well, best one. Well, I mean, from from my act back in 1975, there's not much there. You know, it was the, the usual Muhammad Ali stuff and uh, Howard Cosell. Uh, I don't even know if I was any good. I just know that people responded because I had moxie and I was up there in uh, what was a green corduroy suit so just that in and of itself 
you know, it looked like it might be a ventriloquist act of some sort. So, uh, my my impressions have now been more rooted in you know, broadcasters and you know, Bill Raftery. Obviously, is is the one that comes to mind because I spent so much time with him, and the fact that I can get to his level, high level of ooh, onions. <laughs> I think people respond for whatever reason because of his pure joy and that I can that I can mimic him. And in fact, on, on a net broadcast many years ago, uh, the Nets were playing in Dallas, I want to say, and Kerry Kittles, who was from the New Orleans area, came up with a big bucket at the end of the game. And I did a call my regular call of Kittles, and then I jumped on it with a Bill Raftery impression, and I just said something that I thought he would say, Ooh, jambalaya! <laughs> and Frank DeGrace, the longtime Nets producer, who obviously has a good ear for this stuff, hits me in talkback as we go to break and says, Oh, isn't Raff the best? <laughs> I said, I thought Raff... How about that flip impersonation you were doing? You had us all in stitches. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Oh, no. So, uh, Ian, you became obviously the radio voice very early. I think you were 25, the radio voice of the Nets. Um, <laughs> flip over here is crying. <laughs> oh, this is great. This should be video. Um <laughs> Radio voice of the Nets at 25. Obviously, he literally is crying, Ian. <laughs> if you can Whoa. see this. I'm trying to get to the point that this runs in your family, Ian. Your son, Noah, 22, is now the uh, radio voice of the Clippers. That's got to make you feel proud, yeah. right? Oh, my goodness. Uh, beyond, beyond pride. You know, I think as Flip will tell you, whatever you achieve in your life pales in comparison to what you want for your kids. And the fact that my son, Noah, just wanted to do this for a living, that was flattering enough, uh, the idea that he would want to follow in his dad's footsteps. But then when he got to Syracuse and he showed an aptitude for it and had legitimate talent and had an understanding of what the business was all about and a real nice way with people and how to handle himself out there, uh, that, to me, is is so much more gratifying than than anything that, that I'll ever do. So, yeah, for, for me, for my wife, Elisa, and for our daughter, Erin, all you do is, is hope for the best for your kids, and you hope you put them in a position that they can go out and, and succeed. And the fact that uh, he's out on the West Coast now, which has been great, it's off to a good start, everything is is uh is a-okay other than he's calling me dude a lot i've noticed that <laughs> he's lived there since september 1st i'm getting a lot of uh oh yeah yeah dude it's all i'm like what dude where's that coming from but it, it's been it, it's been awesome a little bit surreal but really special he's off your payroll now which is good right he's, he's got oh, his own paycheck completely <laughs> nothing yeah there's, there's nothing where we're uh we're going to have him treat us to dinner soon. So you mentioned Syracuse. Um, I should mention you and I are complete opposites. I went to Fairfield U, and they couldn't wait for me to leave. You, they, uh, <laughs> Syracuse, they inducted you into the WAERFM Hall of Fame. Where does that sit on your list of accomplishments? Oh, right up there. Only because of what that, that radio station meant to me and what it's meant to all of the, the Syracuse broadcast journalism grads from Marv Albert to Bob Costas to Dick Stockton and Len Berman, on and on and on, Mike Tirico, Sean McDonough. Uh, the list is endless, and it, it's, it's a fraternity in many ways. I was in a fraternity at Syracuse, but I had this secondary fraternity of all of these people that had an aptitude for this and wanted to do this for a living and really loved the whole business of broadcasting and cared about it and to find like-minded people to, to find people that were passionate about something uh, there was a connectivity that was palpable and tangible when you're at school you're all working towards something 
And there's a wink to anybody that's come through the program of, hey, I get it, I understand, because it has been so consistent in how they pump out broadcasters. There's a, a very high bar for anyone that comes through Syracuse, and WAR is intertwined in that heavily. Ian, you have a favorite moment? Yeah, I'd say from a broadcast standpoint, uh, working the Nets games the year that they emerged as, as a legitimate force, which was 0102. Up until that point, uh, nobody really took the team seriously, and they end up with the best record in the Eastern Conference. Jason Kidd comes over in the trade with Phoenix, and the Nets take the league by storm. So that season in particular was pretty special. And then uh, the fact that uh, they went to a fifth and deciding game, uh, that was a three out of five back then. It was the last season in the first round against Indiana in the 1-8 matchup. And Bill Raftery and I had a chance to call that game. Double overtime, so much on the line for the organization. And to see, at the time, Continental Airlines Arena uh, rocking, and it felt like an actual NBA raucous environment, and I just hadn't experienced that, even having started with the team in 1994. So, as you guys can relate to uh, with your day-to-day lives embedded with the New York Yankees, there's, there's just a different feeling when the team actually comes through and delivers, and that moment, to me, from a broadcast standpoint, was the culmination of of so many things and the friendship with Bill and the relationships that were developed to see them break through in that way, uh, that resonates still to this day. It's just, uh, it's a, it's a warm memory. Fast forward to today and this Nets team, um, the excitement level is off the charts. Um, is it comparable to those Nets teams back then you think? Ayn? It is. Uh, I would say the buzz is even stronger, much stronger, because of the star power. When you have Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant now wanting to be a part of this culture and what's been built, and the way that they did it, more than anything else, when you construct a team, uh, look, there's a lot of things that, that go on behind the scenes that no one is ever privy to, conversations, decisions that are made, But from the outside looking in for so many people that were surprised and shocked that the Nets were legitimately being considered by these frontline players, those of us that have been around it the last three years, we were not quite as surprised because of what Sean Marks and Kenny Atkinson have done and the the confidence in which they've done it, the belief in the process that they've developed. So... I'd say that from a culture standpoint, uh, they were set up for this, but until you actually connect on the first day of free agency and open eyes around the NBA that everything that they had done, all the steps leading up to it were correct, and then it actually paid off. There are plenty of teams that clear out cap space. There are plenty of teams that talk about changing the way they're going to do business But this particular group actually came and delivered on all of the things that that they mentioned. So to watch that happen uh, just shows you that if you do things the right way, you don't skip steps, it it can pay off. Now, you got to go out and prove it. You know, it's all great now when you're relevant and people are talking about you. But I think they also know that um, you can't rest on those laurels, and, and now the team has to actually go out and show that uh, this was all for uh, a bigger purpose in mind. Uh, This team is talking about winning championships, not just winning New York, but actually winning a championship. Uh, That, that to me, has put this franchise at a whole different level, even compared to the teams that went to -to back-to-back finals. And you mentioned Kyrie and KD, and everyone's excited about them, obviously, rightfully so. For me, though, I guess... I'm most excited about potentially seeing a healthy Karis Levert for a whole season. Yeah, really talented. Uh, The Nets took a chance on him in the 2016 draft. Uh, He was certainly better than 
being drafted 20th overall, but there were serious concerns about his injuries and the variety of, of surgeries that he had on his foot. That's why he dropped. Uh, most people didn't think he would even go in the first round, but the Nets did their research, felt comfortable with the rehab that he had done, and moving forward thought he could be healthy and would be an effective NBA player. He's gotten better every year. He's going into his fourth year in the league, and now people believe he has a chance to be a star. That's the other part of, of what we've seen with the Nets, the development with the players, Karis LeVert, has gotten better. Spencer Dinwiddie has gotten better. Joe Harris has gotten better. Jared Allen has gotten better. This is not by happenstance. This is the way they've set things up, that if you come to Brooklyn and you are open to coaching, which is a bit of a misnomer. People think, oh, it's the NBA. Guys don't want to be coached. Yeah, they do. They want to get better because it means a bigger contract, and it means a chance for stability and a chance for longevity. So players are open to it. They just want to be coached well, and that's what they've done in Brooklyn. And Laverd has been as big a beneficiary of that as anyone. Right, tell me a little bit about working with Richard Jefferson and Sarah Kustak in a, in a three-person booth. It must be a lot of fun. It seems like it's a lot it of fun. Is. It sounds like it is. What's your yeah, take you on can't, it? You can't fake chemistry. Flip, you've been around this business for so long, and, and everybody – always tells you when you're going on the air, just be yourself, be yourself. Well, that's actually more difficult than it sounds. That red light goes on and they count you out from commercial and there's that moment of, okay, what's going to happen here? I've always felt that authenticity is not something that you can just create out of thin air. Being real and having actual chemistry takes time, and it starts off the air. If if you have real, honest-to-goodness chemistry, that usually means it's happening when the mics are not on. And look, I know you've worked with so many broadcast teams over the course of your career, and sometimes uh, the t- on-air announcers get along, and sometimes they don't off the air. But it doesn't always equate to great friends. It doesn't mean that it works on the air or uh, two partners that don't have dinner together. It uh, doesn't mean that they can't have excellent chemistry once they get going. But to me, eventually people figure it out. Uh, Sarah and Richard both know their stuff. So first, I know they're both going to be prepared. Second, they're both genuine people who they are off the air comes through on the air. So I don't have to worry about them changing into something else or turning into something else once they're told to to go. Uh, Richard brings unique insight because he just retired. He played against all of these players. He has his finger on the pulse of today's NBA. And then the other part is... uh, you're not quite sure what he's going to say. And I mean that in a positive way. The fact that he can take the conversation in so many different places makes it exciting. Uh, As a viewer, I would think that's part of the allure. that You want to know what Richard has to say uh, because it's a little bit unpredictable. Sarah, on the other hand, has done so much research. She speaks the language. She's so well-liked and well-respected by people around the NBA that they are giving her information that other people just aren't getting because of the trust factor and because she's constantly around. She's at practice. She's showing up. People want to share information with her, and the way she's able to synthesize it and then put it out over the air in a digestible manner, that showed from day one. When she was on the sidelines, uh, you could sense that there was more to her than just a 25-second report. So the passion comes through uh, the three-person booth, which, as you guys know, some play-by-play announcers will complain about because it means less airtime for them. I just never view it that way. It's all one product. You're viewed as a whole. Viewers just naturally will listen to a group and say to themselves, well, I like them, or 
I don't like them, as opposed to, well, I like him, uh, I don't like him, I like her. You're viewed as a team, and that's the way I look at it. We're a team. When we go on the air, it's a three-person team. Yes, that's everything you said. I, I agree with everything you just said. But I'll take it a, little, a step further. When you have a play-by-play person who is generous, by that I mean someone who isn't about putting the spotlight on themselves, is about the, the best broadcast they could get, they can have. That means sharing. That means setting people up to succeed. You know, putting them in a direction where you know their area of expertise will really shine. And that's easier said than done, and not every play-by-play person does that. The really good ones do that. They set up the, their booth mates. They work with their booth mates with the idea that everything that comes out at the end is, is a team effort, and you exemplify yeah. that. And that's one of the reasons the net booth works as well as it does. Well, I appreciate that, Flip. Uh, I think you have to be malleable. If you go into this kind of business and think, hey, I'm a solo act, I'm going to do my thing, I don't really care what the other person is doing, then it becomes a disconnect of you talk, I talk. You talk, I talk. It doesn't work. That, that's, that's not the way it is anymore. Uh, the viewers are too advanced. The listeners are too advanced. They can sniff that out. And what people want to hear is genuine conversation. So whatever gauge that I may have during a game is based on what I would want to hear if I was sitting in my living room or if I was driving in my car. I'm constantly reminding myself of that. Is this something that I would respond to? Is this a conversation that I would be interested in? And the moment that I don't think that this is compelling conversation is the moment that I'm going to take it in a different direction and try to get us back on track. So that's a constant process over the course of a game. And even knowing when to have some fun and knowing when to get back to business, there has to be an internal clock in your brain as to, okay, we've gone too far. That was one line too many. Or we've been too serious throughout this game. We, we need to mix in a little bit of levity. Uh, that's, that's also just being a good listener. You know, I'd like to think of myself as someone that you could bring to a cocktail party and then not worry about that. I'm going to find commonality with anybody that I meet there. I'm going to be able to engage someone in conversation, and I'm not going to make it about me. I'm going to try to make it uh, 50-50, but sometimes it's not 50-50. Sometimes the conversation is going to be 30-70, and it might be 70 to the other person, and I'm okay with that. I'm comfortable with that. A third party sometimes can help. Uh, that's where a good producer, you have a great producer in Frank <laughs> yeah. DeGrace. Right, he could say, You're right. you know what, guys, this is great, but you know, let's get back to the game. Well, you know what, oh, you know, 100%. We, we, can, uh, we can lighten this up a little bit. We uh, could lighten the mood a little bit. I mean, because he should be an objective. He's not, none of us are really objective. That's, uh, but he should be a third party that could say, could filter, distill all that's going on and, and sort of point you in a direction sometimes. That's, that's well, very helpful. I'm not just saying this. Uh, flip because Frank's going to be listening to the podcast. I really do mean it. He has a gift for that. He, he has a, a real knack for knowing when to shift gears, what works in the moment, uh, how to create conversation sometimes when you need it. The goal is to be informative and entertaining, and not always in that order. Uh, look, we know the Nets haven't had the best teams through the years, so sometimes you've got to put the entertaining part in front of the informative part, and you've got to keep the broadcast moving, and you have to keep it interesting. And I think for many of those years, uh, that taught me a great lesson. Early in my career, the, the Nets were not very good. They were winning 30 games and sometimes not even getting to that number. And working with Bill Raftery, uh, how he kept it light, and it wasn't always the end of the world with every game taught me valuable lessons of how to approach it and certainly how to handle a, a team that's not winning consistently. That has nothing to do with you as an announcer. Your record is undefeated. You have no losses and you have no wins. <laughs> they, they don't keep records for announcers. So the idea that you take the headset off at the end of a game and say, oh, we won that one. No, you didn't. You won nothing. The goal is to do a good broadcast. No matter what happens, no matter what the final score is, that's your goal. And I realized that pretty early, and, and I've kept that philosophy throughout. 
Lion, you uh, mentioned mixing in some levity. I'm going to mix in a little levity right here. Uh, our Matt Stucco, who you know, I believe he went to your broadcaster's camp. Uh, he did. Lists you as one of his influences. So I guess we have you to blame for Matt Stucco. <laughs> I was going to say, is that, is, that, is that a positive? No. <laughs> he owes you money. I think he <laughs> owe you money. He pay for that course or what? Did he get a scholarship? Right. How'd that work? Uh, I'm going to have to look back through my, my records on that to see if uh, he actually paid or if there, there's still an open account on that. I, I do remember Matt as, as a kid and how eager he was and how serious he was about doing this. So similar to what I mentioned earlier, it just in, in terms of myself, I could tell that, that he had a clear focus on what he wanted to do. And the fact that it's led him uh, down this road to Yes Network, and I watch his stuff online, I'm, I'm blown away uh, just at, at his ability to find new things, to create content. And I think back to the, the 15, 16-year-old that he was at the broadcast camp. And honestly, guys, I can't say I'm shocked. He, he had something. You meet people, and, and you realize that some people have have something special he he did back then and uh, continued success to what is it matt is it is it it's matt it's matthew, matthew. yeah it depends on the day of the week i think with him yeah pick a name man <laughs> Just pick a name go with one of them in all seriousness he is a he's a talented guy we're lucky to have him um yeah well, we have them. <laughs> Before we let you go, I think one of the things everybody's talking about is uh, the ALCS. We're in the middle of it as we speak. The series is tied 1-1. How do you see this one going, Ian? You know, this season was pretty amazing uh, to watch what this Yankee team did and the consistency in which they performed throughout the year. The one team that I looked at around Major League Baseball and thought to myself, uh, they're the only team that can match up with the Yankees based on their pitching, based on the way the team is built, is the Houston Astros. And I know people have been saying this, and it's not, it's not fair to say because there is a whole other series going on in the National League, but for many people, this is the World Series. Uh, just the two best teams going head-to-head. Uh, the way this Yankee team, the resiliency, uh, their ability to to create offense when necessary. I know that that Aaron Boone has been going with with the metrics throughout the year, and and it's paid off. Uh, there's going to come a time in this series where he's going to have to go with his gut. There's no doubt about it. That's how good this Houston team is. But. It's not going to shock me if this thing goes the distance. Uh, these these are the two best teams in baseball, and uh, either team could easily be the champion by the end of 2019. It's unfortunate that one of them's not going to be able to experience the World Series, uh, but that's how it works right now, and uh, we're talking about the two elite teams in the league. I, I tell me something about yourself that our listeners would be would be a revelation to our listeners something that you would want them to know that they don't know about you well this has been out there i'm i'm a bit of a picky eater flip i don't know if you know that there have been a number of items michael k has gotten a lot of attention for this and i i understand why it's it it can be shocking to people there are a lot of items I've just never had. Not that I don't eat them or I don't consume them. Such I've as? I've never had them. Never. Never had a sip of coffee. I've never had mustard. Uh, I had ketchup once by mistake on a class trip to Washington, D.C., and they were throwing McDonald's hamburgers at the kids, and I caught one, and I was disoriented. I was out of my normal, my normal life, and I just took a bite. And there was there was ketchup on it. The only time that I've ever had ketchup, I've never had a salad. I I think roughage is a fad. I don't believe that uh, that it really matters in the grand scheme. I I think that's uh, created by by the by the farmers. I uh, I haven't had a number of other items. We could get deeper if you want, and that will shock people. But this is who I am. I've got a a Ripken-like streak going. I don't see it changing. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not changing my habits. I'm now a 50-year-old man. I have, I have the same eating habits 
as a nine-year-old. <laughs> I would eat chicken fingers every day if that was accepted by society, but it's not. See, something told me, I, I was looking sort of for a different answer than the one you gave me, although the one you gave me was fascinating in its own right. Um, <laughs> uh, all right, so, okay, let, let's, I'll go on to one more. This is my final question to you. If you were, you could go back in time, you're in the broadcast, you've been very successful and you've had an incredible career, a wide range of events. Everything you do, you bring distinction to it. If you could go back in time and pick one event, just one, sitting in a truck, uh, that's the truck. You're in the booth. You could call the game or the event. What game or event would it be that that you haven't worked on that you would have loved to have worked on historically? Whew. That's a great question. You know, I'm going to be very upfront here, and I recognize fully uh, all of the aspects of my employment and this podcast, but it would be the 86 World Series. That's that's the event that uh, would probably be the one if I could be dropped into it, parachute in, and it would be a hot tub time machine. That would probably be the one. Just the drama, the the whole way that that series developed, and considering the end result, uh, that's probably the one that, that comes to mind first. I'm speechless after that. <laughs> can we edit out of the podcast uh, we'll change that to 96 uh, we're good <laughs> I'm sorry, did, did I got I that one too <laughs> no I, I, I misspoke no, I, no, completely well that's interesting uh, I, well listen our time we've spent a lot of time with you I don't know you got things to do so we appreciate uh, you coming on and uh, for people who uh, are not all that familiar with Ian, then you should get familiar with him because uh he is really one of the great voices in broadcasting and not only a great professional, but he's one of the best people that I've worked with in my five decades. As we like to preface this, I've been in this for five decades and I don't know a better person. So, uh, or a funnier one, or actually he can be very poignant on occasion, although those occasions are few and far between, but he can be very <laughs> extremely poignant and <laughs> he's an interesting guy, great guy. So Ian, thank you for your time and uh, we'll see you soon. We'll, we'll go Nets and uh, we'll catch up with you soon. Thank you. Yeah, great talking to you guys. Uh, I always try to make it a point to, to go on my boss's podcast, so thank you. <laughs> it's a good strategy. It's a good, well, Frank DeGrace soon. All right, thank you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks, Ian. Thanks, Ian. See you guys. In a word flip, describe Ian Eagle. Hilarious. Hilarious. That's the only way, right? Yeah, the, He's hilarious. He is. He, he just is. He just, he just cracks me up, instantly cracks me up. Uh, he's so funny. And he's so on point. He's so smart, and uh, and his resume is so diverse. I mean, look at the events that he's done. It's 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 quite remarkable. And you know, the interesting thing, the, what as diverse as the events are, what they all have in common, is his excellence, what he brings to it, because he brings a blend a blend of like of sophistication, understanding, and humor that is hard to find you know, anywhere else in broadcasting. Well, if you like that Iron Eagle interview, please rate, review, and subscribe. That is the best way to help us. Um, we promised some ALCS conversation, right? I want to just wrap it up real quick. As we record this, uh, we're heading into three games in the Bronx. What's your prediction? It's hard to predict, right? This is a really hard one to handicap. It is so hard to predict this. I, I uh, Because, you know, the first game the Yankees had it, and they, eventually they got to where they needed to get, and they won the game. The second game, you know, was a back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and uh, there was tension and drama everywhere. It was a Typical postseason baseball game. The two teams that are playing are the two best teams in baseball. So it's really hard to sort of read the tea leaves here. But I would say that if the Yankees could get to, they don't have to beat Cole and Verlander. They don't. They just have to win the games in which they pitch. Like, you know, like last night was a classic example of that. They didn't have to beat Verlander they, they, for some, per se, but they had to win the game in which he pitched. That's always helpful. They won what they did what they needed to do. They came out of there with a split. Going forward, if the Yankees could, you know, take two out of three here, they're going to have to. 
uh, do that because if you go back to Houston, they have such a big home court advantage. They just do. Home field means everything in the game, too, and uh, they've got that. So this is going to be very, very tough, but uh, Yankees have to play. They play. Each team is playing really good baseball, so it's going to go back and forth. I'm still picking the Yankees in, in a seven-game series. It's going to be tight. It's going to be close, but it's going to be great drama and tension because this is these are two Two of the best teams. In, they are the two best teams in baseball. And everybody's been anticipating this matchup. And it's not going to be a letdown. It's going to be great baseball, epic baseball, and must, must see TV. As Ian said, it's uh, very much the World Series for some people because this is the two best teams in baseball. Heading into these three games in the Bronx, I'll say Yanks tank two out of three. I'm sticking with it. We'll, we'll find out how smart I am next week. Or how dumb we are. Smart. Well, we both did the same thing. Did we say two, two out of three? Yeah, but we could do that. Sure. Because you, I think it's going to be two out of three. And, and just to remind you, you picked the Nationals in the sweep. And as we record this, you are halfway there. So my applause. I mean, I I thought that was like the dumbest prediction in the history of like dumb predictions. Halfway there. But you're halfway there, which is like, you know, it's that's amazing to me. So right now I'm half smart. Yeah, okay. You know, Flip, last week we didn't do a history of yes segment. Okay, so we're going to do five this week? Do we go? <laughs> how, are we, how are we handling this? No, let's talk about, yes, I want to talk about Homegrown. Uh, Homegrown. A great show on our air. How many seasons is it now? This is the third season. <sighs> Produced by Blake Shear on our side. Uh, Matt Wormus has a big part in it. Uh, tell me a little bit about the history of it, uh, how it became. It's not our first reality show, if you're going to call it a reality show. No, we did uh, Ultimate, Ultimate Road, Road, Trip. Road Trip. Yeah, many some years ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that was the first one we did. This one is a little bit more rooted in you know in in, in sports and baseball. Uh, the other one was a social experience. So this is not really as much. This is really about watching and, and growing with minor league players and watch them in their sort of their day to day and see what they go through in their quest to get to the big leagues. So this was an idea I had a couple of years ago. I I try I wanted to do this. But you know it's tough because it bec- you don't want to be invasive. You know you don't want cameras and mics in people's faces. And you know the Yankees were you know sort of ambivalent about it. They realized that it was a good idea, but they also didn't want to be a distraction to the players as we you know we break our cameras sort of everywhere on this show. And uh, but you know we eventually they bought in. And, and that allowed us the, the access. And we've been very fortunate to work with David Abrams, who is one of the, the, none of the nicest people. Uh, he's extremely, uh, his wherewithal and his ability to see the big picture is like amazing. And David so, Abrams is the? Yes, he's the president of uh, Trent Wilkesbury, okay. which is the AAA affiliate of the Yankees, where the homegrown is a, basically, you know, we basically film it. And we interact with all the players. And what's great about that is as they come through the system, as, you know, Gleyber Torres came through the system, as Severino came through the system, as, well, judges were already here, but as Frazier, as those players come through Sanchez, as they come through the system, they get to know us before they get to the big leagues. So there's a great relationship builder for us. The reason, that's one of the reasons we do the show, is to build that relationship so when they get to the big leagues, they know who we are, there's a trust factor, and we're able to, you know, work with them hand in hand to sort of, you know, promote them and to see, help them uh, understand the value of media and which is very important this day and age. So there's tremendous value in this for for the players, and uh, and it also teaches them sort of to be around media and cameras, how to conduct themselves. Because in this day and age, everybody's got a camera on their face or doing something, and it, you know it, it sort of takes a certain amount of training to handle it well. And part of this part of filming homegrown is to give them the training that they need to be successful there. Uh, tremendous value for you say the players. I think it's a win-win-win. Right, because there's value for the players, there's value for the viewers, and there's also value for us, the producers. And I might be too inside baseball here, um, but you know, when you come up with these players like a Glaber, now you're by the time he makes it to the bigs, you guys are already buds. Well, a, a producer. Yeah, that was my point. That was the point I was making before: is that to go through the system with them. There's a certain trust factor that gets you know built up, and a relationship on both sides of the mic from us or the camera, from us to them and them to us. So there's a familiarity. By the time they get to the big leagues, they, they already know us. And that's important because in the day-to-day of, of, of being around the athletes, being around the players, working with them and understanding 
you know, media, which is so valuable these days to understand it, it's invaluable because of their careers, everywhere they go, there's a camera and there's a tape. Someone's asking them a question and they learn how to sort of deal with all that and to deal with something that could be a distraction, but they've already learned how to handle it because they've been around homegrown. And in the case of a Glaber Torres, again, um, I, I remember two spring trainings ago asking for an interview from Glaber and he was insisting that he does it in English. Yeah, well, he's you know that's it's smart because uh, you know it, because it, it's just easier. You know, the, the, so things get lost in translation sometimes. No matter how well you know well said they are, well stated that they are, they can get lost in translation. If you speak a common language, then there's no lo- really losing things in translation. So I, I think that's one of the advantages that someone like a Glaber has. It also sp- says a lot to him that you know he was motivated enough to to learn the to learn that language. You know, not everybody can is, it's not about motivation, I guess. It's sometimes it's just hard to learn. But, but English is a hard language to learn, but he he took on that challenge, he conquered it, and I think he's he's better for it in terms of the social experience. I'm still trying to figure it out. So am I. Right. <laughs> it's a big challenge to me, but uh, these guys master it. I mean, they work hard to master it. So last week one of my favorite parts of the episode um was QP Jason Marshall his uh, drum roll? Yes, it was. It was one of the highlights of the show. Actually, yeah, yeah. Yes. Should we get it again? Because it's almost time for dot dot dot, etc. Et uh, I'm tired of that segment. Here we do. You tired of that segment? Yeah. I mean, it's, okay, I'll do it because I'm a good sport, you know, and I want to. You know, I want to be cooperative. I'm a team player, you know, I really am. So I want to be that to you. So although I, I know I named that dumb segment, I'm happy to sort of sit through it and. It's really a potpourri, isn't it? It's a, a potpourri, potpourri of a. So we we won't call it a potpourri. We'll just call it a. How about dot dot dot, et cetera, et cetera, right? We'll call That's it. That's how that. it became. You yeah, know, it's name. amazing. We have we consistency of that name. But go ahead. Uh, first, uh, Jason, plug that drum roll real quick. You brought up how smart I am with the NLDS. Um, yes. Very smart. At half, least I'm halfway there. Half Speaking smart. of half. the NLCS. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about Nationals closer Daniel Hudson. He chose to take paternity leave. Right. Your sure. thoughts on players taking paternity leave, especially during the postseason? I, I think any season is fine. I mean, it's look, you, everyone has a life, you know, and they have a right, certain rights, and he should be there when his child is born, and he should be there around his wife to help her get through, you know, the, all the labor and everything you have to do to, to bring a child into the world. And I don't. I think it's great. I think it's it's the right thing to do. And I think it's it's great of baseball to have that. It's great of you know Daniel to understand you know what, what's really important in life. Yes, his job is important. It's a job, and it's really important to him. I get that. But you know what? Sometimes you have to let life be life. And I'm you know I'm perfectly fine with it. He doesn't need my approval. But if you're asking me, am I okay with it? I'm more than okay with it. I couldn't agree more. There were people on social media questioning it. Uh, one of those people on social media questioning it, former Marlins president David Sampson, he said on Twitter, unreal that Daniel Hudson is on paternity list and missing game one of the NLCS. Only excuse would be a problem with the birth or health of the baby or mother. If all is well, he needs to go to St. Louis. Inexcusable. I don't know if inexcusable. I don't, I don't necessarily agree with that take, and I know you don't. You just said I, I that. I totally don't agree with it, but... He has a right to his opinion. He know? has a right to his opinion. Uh, Hudson has a right to take paternity leave. Totally. Um, the Nationals supported him, which is great. Moving on. I mean, if his teammates don't have a problem and, and the organization doesn't have a problem, why should some, someone who's not in that organization have a problem? I don't understand. <laughs> I don't but, you know, but that's someone, look, that's, that's what makes this country, this, this great country, be that great country. Let's move on. Our studio shows during this postseason, I noticed Flip have a different look. They're bigger. They're badder. <laughs> we're big, we're bad, we're bold. Is that where we're going with this? The three, the three bigs, the three, the three bees, bees, the killer bees. No, I here we go. Up. I, I'm not a, a producer yeah. in television, uh-huh. um, but I noticed. I get that you're sending. <laughs> I'm understanding this. I've noticed you're sending up to three, four talent to these games in Houston, and we don't even have the game. But the games are so big, and the and the and and so epically important to the Yankees and well, the Astros as well, obviously, but. Look, sometimes you know, big events demand big talent. You know, I mean, I'm sorry. I I know that there's a, you know, there's a, a sentiment in the business sometimes to you know uh, control certain aspects and you know and not to go large. I I think it's important when you have a big event. It says big event. You send the best people you have. We have everybody who does baseball for, uh, from yes, 
every single person has some involvement in this. And I think it's critically important that it be like that. Uh, we have terrific people who work here. And we, Buck Showalter, we brought in to do some stuff. Uh, Jeff Nelson as well. So they're Both there. have been great. They've been terrific. And then we get uh, David Cohn and Paul O'Neill to work with Michael Kay. In the Bronx. This, in the Bronx. And in the studio, we have Bob Lorenz. We have Jack Curry. We have, uh, we have John Flaherty. And uh, well, Buck, obviously. So we have, I mean, I don't know that you could put a better group of talent together, either in the field to work or in the, in the studio to work. Uh, it, it's, it's an epically talented group with, uh, with a, a, tr a very large presence. And again, we're speaking to an audience of pe fans who are just so dedicated to the team. They want largeness. They want to hear from, from the people that we've, put, we've assembled. And we're, we're going to let them hear it. You know, the opinions will be varied. They'll be there. And they could, with a, we, we put them out there and the, the fans could decide, the viewers could decide what they, what they like from what they don't like. But they'll have an option. We'll give them lots of different things to think about. And that's the, and to, and to set up these games. And then to analyze them when they're over in a matter of which, because no one knows the Yankees the way we know the Yankees. They just don't. You might disagree with me. Um, I think I know a lot about baseball. Uh-huh. Um, you do? But I had, I had the you opportunity. You do. No, you do. I had the opportunity to, on Sunday night to watch a lot of the game with Buck Showalter. That's not that great. Wow, what an experience that is, huh? I mean, because he's like managing, he's managing out loud. He's managing out loud. So you hear, look, look at this. He's doing this. He's doing that. You know, you see the way that he looked at the coach. You see the way he looked at the dugout. You see the way the catcher looked at the batter. Yeah. You see the way the batter. Looked. I mean, he sees everything. His his level of observation is like no one I've ever met. And I mean, I know the game backward and forward. I just do. I know Sorry, you do, yeah. uh, but you know what? He he runs rings around me. He just does. I mean, it, it, that shows you. The, the level of understanding and awareness of the game that he has. Like, like I said, it's like no one I've ever met who has that kind of, of, of ability. And I'm, I hope, I don't know what he's going to do. I have no idea. Uh, I have a couple of guesses, but that's all they would be. I hope he goes back and he does what he's just, you know, he's a good broadcaster, by the way. He really is. But he was a, he was a great manager, and I hope that's what he goes back to. So I'm 20-plus uh, years in sports and entertainment. Rarely am I awed. And that was one of those moments where I just sat back and watched, and I was like, "Wow, Buck!" Like, oh, he's a wow. He's yeah. he's a wow oh. plus plus <laughs> ten. He's uh, amazing. And he's funny too. He's, he's oh, he's great. hilarious. Oh, he's he's great to listen. You know, I, I, you, I don't know him all that well. I mean, I know I knew him tangentially through the years, and uh, you know, I, and then when I realized that he wasn't doing, he had sort of retired. No, you're too young to retire. He's in his early 60s. He's got so much to offer, whether it's behind a microphone uh, or it's, you know, in a dugout, you know, managing. Whatever he decides to do, he will bring it to a level of preparedness, a level of understanding that, that will make the game, it will help elevate the game. The game is great, and there's very few that can actually elevate it on some level. He's a difference maker. So I'm really, I'd be really, I'd be really happy for him if that's what he decides to do. If he is going to manage, go back to managing. If he decides he wants to be a broadcaster, I hope he finds a home here at Yes, because I I think he's just been remarkable, and I would love to have him, you know, stay with us. Uh, I have another topic here during this segment, but before we do, I want to mention, um, I believe it was yeah, Saturday night, the studio crew did an amazing job on Yankees postgame. When they started talking about um, changing signs, Sanchez was changing signs when nobody was on base. So that segment, just for reference to put it into context, we put that on Twitter and that was our most watched viewed clip of that night. And never, ever is that the case when there's nights where there's home runs where John Carlos Stanton hit a home run. This beat that. Well, there's a lot of curiosity about it. It's also in the news because there's, there are suspicions of people stealing signs and you know having finding a way to sort of understand and break down the signs. And... Uh, are people tipping pitches? Are they not tipping pitches? Uh, you know, they figure out a sign sequence. They get an indicator sign, and you know, it's, you know, you have basic signs: one, two, and three. You know, one is for a fastball, right? You know, two curve or slider, three is changeup or whatever. Th that's usually the way it works. Um, but and there's an indicator sign. In other words, I can put down one, two, three, one, two, three. If I, then when I tap my shin guard, that might be the indicator. So if I go one, two, three, one, two, three, tap shin guard. That that means that the sign that you do after that is the is the sign we're going to use. So say you want to throw a fastball, and he goes one two three one two three tap of shin guard. That's the indicator sign one. Then two three two three whatever they put afterwards. That one after the shin guard tap means fastball. 
So, but, and again, the, the, some of these signs are basic. There's all kinds of ways they could break it up and change it. When they have runners at second base, they usually do it because that's a good way for the runner at second to sort of peek in, see what the sign is, relay that to a hitter. Once they, if they can figure out your signs, relay it to a hitter. Like he, he may touch the bill of his cap, you know, and that may, may mean fastball. He might put lean on his knee. That may be mean a curveball or a slider or whatever. There are ways for this batter, the runner at second, to sort of pick things up. So that's one of the reasons they change. But if they change with no one on base, that is because they're just being extra cautious because the Astros have a, have a uh, history of, of being able to pick up your signs. And the Yankees are just being cautious, which is smart. The game within the game, it's, it's fascinating to me. Um, switching gears, as promised, before Sunday's game, you and I sat in my office and we, tried, uh, we watched the Jets try to lose that game. Boy, did they ever try. <laughs> they tried. <laughs> did they ever try. But they won. Listen, they beat the Cowboys. That's all that matters. That just shows you the difference when you have a, a, like a really court, a good quarterback in the game. It matters. It changes everything. That's the most important position in you know, football. Is you play fantasy football? Uh, no, I'm not into fantasy. Are you? I'm not fantasy into football, yeah. Oh, I see. Fantasy football. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I don't play that. I don't, I don't play fantasy baseball either, although I, I've coached a lot of people who do. And I've given them a lot of recommendations. Like before Aaron Judge got to the big leagues, I told a friend of mine, draft Aaron Judge. And then that out of Torres, same thing. I mean, they're obvious. They were obvious big talents, you know. And so, but, you know, when you're doing those leagues, yeah. you know, everybody's going for name established players. They don't look to see, you know, sort of like, let's see in the farm system who could come in and make B impact. And I might be able to pick up for, you know, not a lot of money. And I, I think that's the key to winning that. But again, I don't really play it. So, but I have friends who do, and it's fun. I can understand why it's people are fascinated by it. So I went uh, wire to wire, first place in my fantasy baseball league this year, and then lost in the championship game. So that is me. That's like me at the Emmys. You know, I was going to say I was going to say that Susan Lucci. <laughs> I was going to. Well, Susan Lucci did, that finally well, did win. She but, did, yeah. And she I'm deserved. due. Well, so was she. And then she won, and now it's a good example for you. Yeah. So what, what do you think? What, I'm handicapping this. What do you think? Next five years, ten years? Will I win one? Yeah. I have a really good feeling heading into this one. This, this year. The coming up. We won 13 last year. You didn't win any last I was year. nominated three times. But did you win? I was nominated three times. No. Okay. <laughs> well, I, I've got it now. Well, nominations are great. It's an honor to be nominated. It, oh, stop. Ask me if I think that. No. Well, yeah, you have dozens of them. Hundreds of them. I don't have hundreds of them. I have, I have well, if some. you have yeah. 101, yeah. you have hundreds. Okay. It's true. All right, I'll go with that. All right. <laughs> okay. Thank you. On that note, maybe we should land this thing. Yes, let's land it. In the words of who? Ashley Fugazi. <laughs> it's time to land the plane, baby. Let's land it. For Mr. John J. Filippelli and our QP, Jason Marshall, I'm Kevin Sullivan saying we'll see you next week. <laughs>